Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. Her Britannic Majesty's Ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Jane Owen, is my newest guest. Among other things, we talk about the present state of bilateral relations, the triangular relationship between the UK, Switzerland and the European Union, and how she explains what is going on in the UK when asked that question by some of the people she meets. Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be back in Bern again and it's a particular privilege to have as my guest the British Ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Her Excellency Jane Owen. She's the UK's 22nd Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary to the Swiss Confederation. And by the way, that title dates back formally only, I say only, to 1953, although diplomatic relations between Britain and Switzerland date back to the 17th century at least. The relationship between these two countries is long and deep and cordial. Your Excellency, welcome. Welcome back to the McKay interview, and thank you for welcoming me to your official residence here in the heart of the city. Thank you very much, Michael, and it's great to see you here on this sunny day it's in glorious, Bern. glorious. And I can tell you, listeners, that the, the lawn is like a billiard table. If you know what a billiard table looks like, it's all due to all that rain that we've been having in May and June. Before we begin, I should mention that you've now been here in Switzerland for four years, and before that were Britain's ambassador in Oslo. And prior to Oslo, you held senior diplomatic posts in New Delhi, in Tokyo, and Vietnam. Now, I have much to ask you, Ambassador, you can imagine. These past four years must have been extraordinary for you. Brexit, important, even critical bilateral relations, and now a once-in-a-century pandemic. Ambassador, tell me, what successes or achievements of you and the team that you've built around you give you the greatest satisfaction? In other words, the policies, the strategies, or actions that have on completion worked out well, and what is on your desk that is still work in progress? Well, I think the first thing to say is that uh, the relationship between Switzerland and the UK is really growing very, very strongly. And I know that ambassador, uh, ambassadors always say that about the country that they're in. But I have to say, we have seen a real shift in the prioritization of the relationship on behalf of both countries. So what we've achieved is uh, very much uh, to the credit of the Swiss government as well. Um, I think the real achievements have been protecting the relationship that we had built up over the last you know 300 years that you were mentioning protecting that relationship making sure it's fit for the future but also looking with a very ambitious lens at how much further we can go in cooperation on trade and investment on science on people to people cooperation uh, and on political engagement and policy engagement across the international space I guess we're going to talk a little bit more detail about some yeah. of those things as our conversation progresses. And this is not meant as a negative, but we've lived through 15 years of very difficult times. To what extent has the pandemic, which began to affect us here in March of last year, affected bilateral relations, whether positively or negatively? And could you give me some examples, perhaps some of the side effects or unintended consequences which surprised you and might even surprise me and our listeners? 
Yeah, so I mean, I think the the pandemic has been a huge challenge for for everybody, hasn't it? And certainly, um, it affects travel around the world. We've worked very closely to try to make sure that we can manage as far as possible uh, the travel between Switzerland and the UK. But I'm very aware that there are a number of restrictions that are still in place, which are still affecting people's personal lives. So the best we are trying to do on that is to make sure people have got the information they need. I think there's two very interesting aspects for us at the embassy in terms of how well we are cooperating with Switzerland. We're trying to work very closely on what we are doing domestically, uh, the vaccines, the genomics, the science, etc. And very importantly, we work really closely together at the international level. So COVAX, which is mm. the international campaign to send out vaccines to the whole world. The UK is one of the largest donors to that, over half a billion pounds. And of course, the AstraZeneca vaccine is really the backbone of this process. You know, very many of the, uh, the 1.3 billion doses that we expect to deliver to 92 countries in the course of this calendar year will be from AstraZeneca. Uh, the government in the UK has worked really closely with AstraZeneca to make sure that it can be delivered at the right price and that is absolutely essential for the developing world. And we've just announced, I think overnight, that we're giving another 100 million of our surplus doses to the COVAX program. So it remains the main delivery vehicle for us to help to get the whole world vaccinated. Okay, that's good to know. Look, I'm sure you realize, Ambassador, this is a, a sensitive area to discuss on the record, but I'm sure it won't surprise you to know that I and our listeners will be interested to hear how you describe the triangle of relationships between the United Kingdom between Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the European Union, especially in the light of the recent withdrawal of Switzerland from further negotiations with the European Union. And before you answer my question, are you familiar with the recent article, I think it was in The Spectator, by British financial writer Matthew Lynn, in which he suggests a common market between the UK and Switzerland. How would you characterize this new triangular relationship, UK, EU, Switzerland, and what would you say to Matthew Lynn's idea? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is obviously that the triangular relationship is an important aspect of it. It's interesting when I talk to colleagues in the Swiss government that we are very aware that we each have a, a separate and a different approach to our relationship with Europe that has been built up in a different way over the last 40 years. Um, but we both want to have a successful cooperative relationship with the EU. That's really important. And as you know, we are the EU's third and fourth largest trading partners so we do believe there are serious um, uh, benefits for both sides in so getting this so right. So sorry to interrupt. So both countries are in consecutive order. Yes. I see. So if you look at the EU's largest trading partners, number one is the US, number two is China, number three is the UK, uh, about half a billion pounds of trade each year, and number four is Switzerland, which is, I think, about uh, 250 billion. So, sorry, the UK, half a trillion, um, Switzerland, uh, about 250 billion. I see. And, and, and both, both governments really are serious about getting this close to and having this, I think, I think Theresa May created the phrase in the first time, this close relationship with the European Union and 
and Brussels. Yes, I mean, I think we both want to manage the relationship in a sensible way. And from the UK's point of view, I mean, we're very pleased to have the clarity of the trade and cooperation agreement. We believe it puts us in a really good position to build for the future. And when I say build for the future, I don't mean going back to the negotiating table and having, you know, a, a whole range, a whole suite of further uh, agreements. I think we believe that the trade and cooperation agreement is an excellent basis. And now we just need to get on and do the trade and cooperation mm. rather than constantly negotiating it. And I was very struck by uh, President Parmelin uh, the other day saying that he also felt that where Switzerland was now with the European Union, a positive of it was at least having clarity about what Switzerland, uh, w where Switzerland is going and what Switzerland wants. So I, I think we're both trying to, to build that in a successful way. But of course, the bilateral relationship between the UK and Switzerland is also really, really important and has, in fact, probably become a lot more important over the last sort of three or four years. Um, I think we will not necessarily be heading towards a common market because that implies no customs. And as you know, Switzerland has always had uh, customs with the European Union, for example. We've now introduced customs with the European Union. But what we want to make sure is that the customs processes are as streamlined and as digitized as they possibly can be. Um, our trade agreement with Switzerland already means that there are no new tariffs at all between the UK and Switzerland compared to the relationship we've had over the last sort of 40 years. So that's very good. And we've also got new agreements uh, in place on things like mutual recognition in the area of goods. Mm. And we would like to go much further with this with a comprehensive free trade agreement in future, which we are starting to explore, and also with uh, an, uh, an arrangement on mutual recognition for financial services. That's right. Important. regulation which is really important because by many standards the two biggest financial services centers in Europe are the UK and Switzerland you've got Zurich and Geneva here you've obviously got the city of London in the UK but you've got other significant contributors like Edinburgh which is quite a big and emerging and growing financial center in the UK and they're, they're very dominant if you if you look across the piece. And both countries have significant manufacturing sectors, but essentially mm -hmm. it's a service sector which seems to be growing in both. Would that be fair to say? Well, yes. I mean, I think uh, the UK is still in the top 10 manufacturing countries in the world, so a lot of a bigger manufacturing country than Switzerland, which a lot of people uh, forget. Um, uh, but yes, we, we want to maintain a balance between manufacturing and services and also technology. Uh, and if you look at the, the latest British government strategy paper, rather strangely named the Integrated Review, which I know makes it a bit opaque for a lot of people. But I have to say, it, it's a really readable document, so I would commend it to you. And it does highlight the importance of technology in every area of life. And obviously, we all kind of know this, mm -hmm. but I think we don't automatically think of technology or digitization when you think about defense and security. You don't automatically think about it when you think of democracy or human rights. But one of the points we are making in the integrated review is that that is the way we need to be thinking in future. And for those of us who are curious, where can you read it? Uh, online on GovUK. GovUK. Gov yeah. okay, integrated review. <coughs> okay. I'm sure you'll find it. Now, Ambassador, as we speak, the UK hosts the G7 summit in Cornwall. It's glorious, and I hope the weather's as good in Cornwall as it is here this, this morning. Understandably, these big high-level summit meetings always attract attention. But please explain, in simple language, what it is 
about this particular G7 summit that's especially important for the host country, the United Kingdom, and for Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Yeah, so I think we're really proud to be the presidency of the G7 this year. It's the first time the summit has taken place in two years. So it's getting these uh, global leaders together uh, is obviously very important. What are they going to be talking about? I think there's four main topics. Health and coronavirus pandemic is clearly one. Climate change is another. And I think um, all of the members of the G7 have now committed to be zero carbon by 2050, uh, net zero. But in the UK, we are pushing the agenda constantly. Our target for 2035 is a 78% reduction on 1990 levels. And um, that that is quite tough to achieve when you think what we've already done. Um, we've taken coal more or less out of the energy production economy in the UK. Uh, more than 40% of our energy production is now completely renewables uh, and over 60% of it is low carbon if you include the nuclear side of things which I know is always a bit controversial here in uh, Switzerland. Um, so um, we are definitely hoping to drive progress on climate because we are then of course hosting the climate summit in November which will be another very important global moment. The other two things on the agenda will be free trade and global prosperity with a particular focus on a fairer global economy. And then finally, uh, I think the, all of the leaders will want to talk about democracy, human rights, values, human, you know, the human values that we all want to cherish and promote uh, because there are really concerning moves about how the how the world is moving either in a in a direction of democracy or in a direction of autocracy and we need to be very aware of which parts of that uh, which parts of these democratic values are so important to us we always take them for granted in my view and we need to hold on to them and uh, cherish them for the future and of course the g7 admits some of the, mm. <laughs> the, the the sort of elephants in the room so to speak in this case they won't be in the room maybe at the g20 which will be coming up uh, soon anyway my guest today is the british ambassador to switzerland and Liechtenstein, her excellency jane owen and we are in Bern, the capital ambassador i know that an important part of the job of all bilateral ambassadors is to represent and develop cultural connections. Please give me some insights into what you do vis-a-vis -vis cultural relations between the UK and Switzerland. And now that the UK is more of a devolved state mm. uh, than it was, say, 35 years ago when I first arrived here, are there special cultural initiatives for the English, the Scots, the Welsh, and Northern Irish too? And if there are, give me some examples, please. Well, there's a huge amount going on, and actually in the embassy, I think we find very often we are kind of uh, watching what's going on, watching a hundred flowers bloom, really, rather than having to drive it, because very often we don't have to drive it because it's all happening anyway. So I'm, I'm really uh, struck by the fact that the huge people movements that we have, the huge connections at the personal level between our two countries are incredibly strong. You know, we have a, somewhere approaching a million tourists going in each direction every year not at the moment obviously but in normal years it's famous that we have like 150 flights a day in a good uh, in, in normal years again um, between the UK and Switzerland there's around 40,000 people in both countries who have moved to live and work so the the 
stable community is also quite large and we also have loads and loads of students of course I mean some examples of the sort of cultural exchange we've got there's an ex exhibition at the moment by a rather famous British artist called Rose Wiley she's in the, in Baden in the Langmat Museum um, David Chipperfield is a British architect who is responsible for designing the new Kunsthaus extension in Zurich, in Zurich. and that will be opened in October so if anyone is going to that opening or if you're going to see the beautiful art collections in the Kunsthaus in Zurich uh, you'll be able to see this this new building that's been developed by David uh, David Chipperfield um, and also uh, looking at what's going on in um, in the four different uh, countries of, of the UK um, for example in Northern Ireland we have a great program for English language assistance to go to Northern Ireland and we've uh, uh, and indeed to come here uh, to Switzerland. So we've got a few people who are coming to work in Nestle or in the uh, life sciences industry and we've got uh, a few Swiss technicians who are going to what is one of the largest diagnostics laboratories in Europe which is in Northern Ireland it's called Randox and we're very pleased that there's going to be um, some Swiss representatives going there to help with their language programs and so and yes it's going on at that level as and well and you say this is not being driven at all by you this is coming through private enterprise yes. and other relationships yes exactly I mean some of it is driven by the British Council actually we shouldn't forget the British no. Council they have quite a large so they still have an office of here they? they have an office yeah. here and a lot of their work here is uh, delivering exams which are often quite important language exams for people who want to go to the UK if you need to have those kind of qualifications um, but they're also uh, pretty involved in a lot of the cultural work we do there was a huge Turner exhibition that I went to in Lucerne I don't know if you went to that one a couple of years ago and it was just stunning and that was done in cooperation with the Tate Gallery impressive i used to yeah. live i used to live years ago within view of the riggy yeah. and so there's always a lot of uh, emotion attached to seeing paintings of the that yeah. famous mountain yeah and of course i should also say we are really looking forward tomorrow to the football match between wales and switzerland so i uh, have not put any money on either team because i think it will be an extremely close match and uh, i'm really looking forward to watching it tomorrow so tomorrow because I've, I've got a calendar in front of me tomorrow is Saturday the 12th of June, am yes, I correct? Yes, that's right, I, I think it is the 12th. I've lost track yes. of the week, okay. Okay, Ambassador, in previous conversations I've had with your predecessors, and some of them in this very room, this very elegant room, I learned that cantonal visits mm. play an important part in the Ambassador's schedules, and the Swiss cantons, all 26 of them, are after all sovereign in a way that the nations of the UK are not. Now, if it's not too invidious for you to pick out one or two visits that remain firmly in your memory. Please tell me what, where, and why. Yeah, so I do uh, spend quite a lot of time traveling around and visiting cantons. Sometimes they're for official visits, but very often I'm just traveling to meet companies, meet individuals, meet uh, institutions. And of course, that's not official, but it's still going around uh, Switzerland. Um, and I, we do find that a lot of our cooperation, for example, at the business level uh, and also the cultural level, and very importantly, at the health level at the moment, and indeed at the consular level, 
is done with the cantons. So I really take my hat off to the cantons who are always operating in a, you know, in a very uh, professional way, but are also very supportive to us. I think two things that uh, come to mind, I remember going to Lucerne, and this very often happens in Switzerland, doesn't it? You, you go and visit a company. We went to visit a company called Thermoplan. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. heard of Thermoplan. I, I think mm. most people have not heard of Thermoplan. They have a beautiful factory on the banks of the Vierwaldstätter See mm. in a place called Vegis, which Us. you may know. Glorious, yeah. And they produce an awful lot of all of the coffee machines sold to car Starbucks in the whole world. So this Coming was, out of Vegas. Yes, and you can stand in their factory um, looking at the production and then you look out across the, the window and you see the beautiful, beautiful view. It's so glorious. it makes me think if you're going to be in manufacturing, mm. Switzerland is quite a good place to be, really. Um, the other thing uh, I once did was go to visit one of Switzerland's very famous gold refineries down in uh, Ticino. And my lasting memory of that was being given a, a literally a, a gold, long gold pipe that looked like something you might have around the back of your bath or your basin, a rather thin gold pipe. So it was hollow. It was hollow, it was hollow pipe. Yeah. And uh, it was put in my hands. And the first shock is, of course, how heavy it is <laughs> yes. because you think you're going to be able to yes. hold it in one hand, but actually you need two hands and it's very heavy. And then I was asked, what do you think this is for? What do you think this is for? It looks like something a plumber might buy, you know. <laughs> and, um, yes. and it transpired that they cut this gold pipe into tiny sections, of course, for wedding rings. Oh, so yes. when you buy your wedding ring yes. in Switzerland, yes. you <laughs> might consider that it probably comes from one of these rather heavy uh, solid gold pipes. <laughs> and my wife and I both have a wedding ring from Swiss stores in Kingston, Jamaica, which was <laughs> owned by a Swiss in yes. Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> Interesting story. Oh, that's a, I like that story very much. And Basil, you must be often asked, and this is a serious question, although yeah. after that lovely gold pipe story, you must be often asked, what is really going on in your country, Ambassador? What do you say? For example, how, how have you explained the government's unsure start regarding its reaction to COVID-19? Though it wasn't by any means a country alone in this. And do you receive compliments on the UK's relatively good performance regarding the vaccination of its population? Yes, I think if you look at all governments around the world, it's a pretty mixed picture, isn't it? Uh, and of course, this was uh, this was a big shock in the spring of uh, 2020, and we have all been trying to manage it in the best way we possibly can. I think for the UK, the vac vaccination program has been really, really important to us. We've now got um, around 40 million people having had at least one dose, and uh, 30 million people have actually already had two doses of our uh, vaccines now uh, we spent a we we went out and bought quite a lot of vaccines so we've got quite a lot of flexibility in the vaccines we've got and now about half of the uk adult population oh. have had two yeah, exactly. And of course, we've been going down from the, the more elderly people down. We're now offering vaccines to anyone over 25. That's happened in the last few days. So it's, it's very significant. The other thing the UK is putting a lot of effort into is the genomics. 
which is partly why when we are seeing some of these variants coming out, it's very often, as you will have noticed, the UK that finds them first because our genomics capability is almost unrivaled in the world, I think. And just for those people who may not mm. be familiar with this vocabulary, genomics is essentially very, very sophisticated detective work. Yeah. Would that be a, a reasonable way of putting yes, it? Yes, exactly. It's sort of, you know, ha being able to, yeah, to... to to track what is happening with the variants. Um, uh, and in the UK, cell and gene therapy are two areas that we have um, invested a huge amount of research into. So at the moment, we also have a, what we call a genome database in the UK. The UK is quite unusual because within the NHS, we have about 50 million people who are on a database. I mean, that in itself is pretty unique in yeah. the whole world, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, and we've got about a million people who are on the genome database at the moment, and we intend to increase that to five million. So you can imagine if we end up in a position in a few years' time where there's five million people whose data is all on this database, um, properly controlled, of course. We, we're also, you know, very, very aware of the challenges of handling personal data, but it is, it is properly controlled. And then you can link up with hospitals, but also with family doctors. So you do have a very clear view of the whole sort of holistic picture of an individual's health all completely anonymized and this is a, a real treasure trove it's a gold mine for researchers which is why the uk continues to be the leading place in the uk in in europe for example for biotechnology research i can imagine mm. ambassador i should remind you that when we last spoke in front of the microphone back in november 2018 it was great to um, to, to talk to you then, mm. you said, and I quote you, uh, the British government cannot in any way accept a border down the Irish Sea. Simple question, but isn't that apply, what applies now, Ambassador, and what went wrong? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that we have had a, you know, a long and complex and intense dialogue uh, with the European Union over the past couple of years to get to a place where we have signed the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the protocol is, is in a way precisely designed not to have a border down the Irish Sea because it's very important to remember that it kind of protects two things. It, it protects things in two different directions. In a way, it protects north-south within the island of mm. Ireland, um, and the idea there was to protect the EU single market uh, and also to ensure that trade could continue. Um, but it was also intended, and this is very important, to protect the east-west trade uh, for Northern Ireland as an integral part of the UK and also as an integral part of the British customs territory. Um, and finally, of course, the really important thing we've all got to remember is that the protocol was very explicitly intended to protect all of the wins, the hard-fought wins of the Good Friday Agreement and the path to peace uh, in Northern Ireland and Ireland. So we absolutely need to make sure that it's, um, that it's operating um, in, in, that, in a way that protects all of those aspects. So was my question, put bluntly, what went wrong, um, misdirected in that respect? Because you sound more positive than I expected you to sound. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the <coughs> what we achieved in the Northern Ireland Protocol um, does set out the parameters for a successful management of the relationship. 
the issues we face, I guess, are the um, are the ways in which it is being operated. And we are very, very clear in the UK that we need to make sure that it's operated in a way that does all of the things that were set out in the protocol. For example, making sure that unfettered trade access can continue between all parts of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, um, uh, and making sure that the lives and the livelihoods, so the business interests of people in Northern Ireland is not affected and that it's uh, that it's run in a pragmatic way uh, we do in fact have a joint committee meeting going on this week which will look at the operation of the protocol and we're absolutely clear that we need to find a risk-based way to ensure that goods people animals food everything can continue to go between the the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland bearing in mind that you know, most of this movement, there there is no risk that things will then go into the EU single market across the uh, the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. So where you've got things that are very clearly going into the shops or in or just involve you know people travelling between Northern Ireland and and the rest of the UK. Um, the risk is then very low, almost non-existent, to the single market. And so there there should be a pragmatic way of handling that. Yeah. Sorry, no, I, I, no, it's just a brief supplementary to that. I yeah. just wanted to ask you if you're ever asked here in your day-to-day -day mm. as ambassador about the tension, the increased tension in Northern Ireland, Brexit negotiated conclusions, you've already mentioned the Northern Ireland Protocol, that have brought about these tensions, the alleged, and I, I stress the word alleged by the EU Commission, misbehaviour of Her Majesty's government and the ensuing legal action of the EU sounds quite serious to the ordinary man in the street. Sounds quite serious. Yeah, so I think for us, um, we we are looking at the operation of the protocol uh, and trying to find a way to make sure that we can get it to work effectively um, in a pragmatic way and in a way that really protects the spirit of what we were trying to do. And there are ways to do this, and we've made several, a great many suggestions to the European Union, actually, about what flexibility there could be to make sure that the... Um, the protocol operates effectively while also protecting the European uh, Union's very correct uh, view of needing to make sure the single market operates properly, but also protecting the interests of peace in Northern Ireland, which will always be for us the number one thing that we want to make sure uh, that happens. Uh, I mean, we're only five months into the operation of what is a very big uh, shift uh, for people, so we think we need to have a bit of patience and a bit of pragmatism. Uh, we have extended the grace period to enable individuals and businesses to have more time to adapt, and we think that also gives us time to have a sensible, pragmatic conversation with the European Union about how we can best manage, for example, goods that are flowing into Northern Ireland, but which will absolutely not be going further into the uh, into the Irish Republic, and we need to have a better way of managing that. I'd love to ask you more about that, but uh, I've got other, other questions which I'm sure um, listeners will be interested in. And, and the, again, another sensitive one. Mm. What about the Scottish sentiments regarding independence or at least another referendum and the possible breakup of the United Kingdom? How do you answer such questions of genuine inquiry, Ambassador, and, and concern? I mean, how do the 
Swiss ever, or how, I meant to say, have the Swiss ever offered you advice on their experience regarding devolution Swiss style, as I'm sure you've learned since being here, the most recent example was when the canton of Jura separated from the canton of Bern in 1979 to join the confederation in its own right. Now, it's not quite the same mm. as um, Scottish independence, if that ever should come about, but I just wondered what the Swiss say to you. That yeah, you can I, talk about. I confess <laughs> that um, I haven't really ever had anyone in Switzerland saying I should, you know, look at Switzerland as an example, though I would say that it is um, interesting when you look at the amount of devolution that has already gone on with all of the devolved administrations in the UK, but particularly Scotland, um, and I think the pandemic has demonstrated just how much devolved responsibility the Scottish government does have, for example, in areas not just of health, but also in areas uh, in, in their scope to control travel movements, for example. I think quite a lot of people were rather surprised that the Scottish government did have control over some of the uh, the migration, you know, the in and out of Scotland elements. And actually, that I know that caused quite a bit of confusion, probably for some of your listeners as well. But nevertheless, it's a fair amount of devolution. I mean, I always point to the fact that we did have a, a significant, very significant referendum in Scotland, didn't we? 2014, and it was a very clear result. 55% uh, of the Scottish population voted to remain part of the United Kingdom. Now, okay, that was six years ago. It's still only six years ago, isn't then. it? Yeah. So yeah. Um, the British government view remains that uh, we, we had a referendum, we had a result. Um, what we are discussing at the moment also with the Scottish government is, of course, the absolute priority has to be to get out of the pandemic, to recover, and very importantly, to make sure the economic recovery is going well for the whole of the country. And, you know, Scotland makes a very significant contribution to that. I mentioned the financial services uh, uh, power of Edinburgh, but there's also a lot of technology that comes out of Scotland. Um, uh, and so I don't know if any of you ever use the website Skyscanner in those old days where we used to book flights the whole time but anyway Skyscanner is a unicorn company that came out of I uh, can't remember if it was Edinburgh or Glasgow I think it's Edinburgh I'm not sure billion pound uh, companies began as a startup ended up as a massive uh, provider and uh, so you know technology in Scotland is also great so we need to work together on the COVID and economic recovery and that will be the focus of the next few years. And as the previous ambassadors have told me of their surprise that relatively little is known by the British, or at least in Westminster, about the rich texture of and variety within Switzerland, not to mention the large amount, as you mentioned before, trade and investment between our two countries. Which parts of this rich texture and variety do you see it as your role to highlight and stress? Yeah, I think it, it's sometimes hard to know quite where to start because you're right, it, it, it is, uh, it is a, a very substantive relationship that's probably not well enough known. Certainly trade and investment is incredibly important. I mean, when we look at the level of trade uh, that uh, was going between Switzerland and the, and the UK at the end of December, it was about £40 billion in a, a calendar year. Um, so if you think about 
some of the trade agreements that the UK has been signing over the last few years. I mean, obviously, the e the one with the EU is the, the biggest one. Yeah, sure. um, but after that, Switzerland is by far the next largest. So it's about £40 billion out of a total of sort of non-EU business of around £180 billion with about 67 countries. So we have signed an awful lot of trade agreements around the world. But interesting to know that after the European Union... The one we have with Switzerland is the next biggest. It's really significant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So there's sort of trade investment. Switzerland is still in the top 10 investors in the UK. Very, very important. And not just financial services. You know, country, companies like uh, Roche, Novartis, ABB all have very significant investments in the UK. Um, then there's technology and science. I think we will continue to cooperate really strongly in that, including trying to find solutions for the future, low-carbon solutions, green finance solutions, uh, digital solutions across the board, where Switzerland is a really strong player in areas like quantum data. And finally, people-to-people -people contacts. I suppose one of the things I really want to stress uh, in my role here is that we have a lot of people-to-people -people contact anyway. We want to keep that going. The UK's new immigration system, which we introduced uh, on the 1st of January, is very, very open to talent and students and workers who want to come to the UK. So we really, I really hope that people understand that that opportunity is absolutely still there because we want to encourage the movement of talent in both directions. I think there's a communications job to be done there because yeah. I think a lot of people aren't. Mm -hmm. And there's so many mis... Um, misunderstood stories yeah. that, that circulate and, they, and now with social media they, yeah. they rapidly um, build on each other. Yes, exactly. You know, so for example, if you, uh, if you have identified a job and if you have a job offer in the UK um, and you are Swiss, you uh, can go through the points system, you can do it on your telephone, you don't need to go to any kind of um, visa centre and uh, you will get a response fairly quickly, I think within weeks, on your telephone to tell you, you know, yes, you can go or no, you can't. Of course, none of this is being terribly much tested at the moment because of coronavirus, but the system is working. And, um, uh, and I know quite a few Swiss um, young people have gone to the UK to study this year, despite all, a lot of online studies. I, I was talking to someone just last night whose daughter is in Bath, doing a master's, successfully studying, loving it, mm. um, very great happy. Great city, great yeah. city. Yeah, and when you've finished your studies in the UK, you can stay to work for two years or three years if you're a PhD student. This is a new graduate visa route, which we are just formally introducing this week because kids are coming to the end of their studies um, in the UK this month, I guess, the end of the, the academic year, isn't it? Uh, so people will be able then to apply to stay on, and I hope a lot of people will do that as well. Great. So listeners, you heard that first on the McKay interview. That's, that's great news, and uh, straight for the ambassadors lips and mouth there, that's good to know. Last question, Ambassador, because yeah. time's moving on. You've explained many interesting aspects of your official diplomatic role representing Her Majesty's government to the Swiss Confederation, but you, as head of the embassy here in Bern, also have a pastoral role vis-a-vis -vis the British community. 
for non-British listeners, let me mention a couple of a couple briefly. For example, you're the patron of the British Residents Association of Switzerland. I'm a member of that organisation, an organisation dating back to just after World War II. And you're also honorary co-president of the British Swiss Chamber of Commerce, now 101 years old, and I'm also close to that organisation. To name just two long-established civil society British bilateral institutions come to my mind. Please tell me more and the listeners about how you see your role in interaction with the British community here, which as you all know is very long established. Yes, exactly. I think our role, we are here to work for you, is my one message. So we're here to provide you with information, sometimes provide you with contacts if you need them. Um, we're also here to relay your your opportunities, concerns, comments, questions back to the British government. That's another part of our role. So we do this. We do it in a number of ways. We obviously do it on the business level uh, where there have been a lot of questions about how things are going since the 1st of January, for example. We're very, very active answering those questions. We do it on the level of travel and coronavirus and pandemic. You can imagine there's a huge amount yeah. of uh, confusion quite, imagine. quite understood. Um, we encourage uh, Swiss citizens, by the way, also to sign up for the British EU settlement scheme in the UK. We now have 5 million Europeans who have signed up to that scheme. So anyone who was resident in the UK up to the end of December can sign up for it. And that means you're able to then uh, retain all the rights you had before. And we kind of try to reach out to people so that people know that we're here if you end up in any sort of situation of crisis. You know, if you have a, you know, a serious problem where you might need our consular support or perish the thought if we end up in a, in a security crisis or anything like that, we would absolutely be here to help. And we do regularly practice and make sure that we are on the ball and ready to respond if the worst should ever happen. Very important. Ambassador Jane, thanks so much for answering all my questions so thoroughly and comprehensively. It's been a joy to be here with you again. My guest today has been the British Ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Her Excellency Jane Owen. Thank you again for having me, Ambassador. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.